The reading this morning is Psalm 33, verses 1 through 9. It's a song about singing joyfully. But many people don't know about the Psalms, that these, what's our exact count in Psalms? A hundred and the low 100s. Um, the Psalms go through every human emotion possible. We always think of the you know, Psalms of lament, songs of joy, songs of despair, Psalms of grief, songs of praise and thanksgiving. And today is one about joy. But know that this song is one of many chords that this incredible book of verses touch. Listen. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For he spoke it, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. May you hear what the Spirit is saying to you this morning. read an article this week about the news entitled Negative News Statistics at a Glance. So good stuff in there based on a fair amount of research. And I'm just going to read the headers. Nothing hugely surprising here, but Approximately 90% of all media news is negative. Sensational stories form 95% of media headlines. Nielsen ratings are at fault for 50% of negative news statistics. Ratings boost viewership. All studies show that headlines with bad news catch 30% more attention. Websites that actually focus on positive news have about 60% less viewers. An average of 79% of media companies print 
biased stories for advertisers. And last, headline manipulation has proven to double readership. So why why does that matter to us? Why would it matter to us? I think it matters because the pervasive backdrop of information that is fed to us affects us. It almost has to taint the way that we see the world in which we live. And then the negative bias would be the thing that then knowingly and unknowingly shapes our worldview. Which is to say that the negative loop reinforces itself and then traps us in a particular narrative. Which, what does that mean? It means we would find ourselves talking more times than not, if not most of the time, about what a terrible, terrible mess the world is in. Worse than ever. A legitimate reason for us to be anxious and afraid. So I actually do want to pause just for one second right there and state the obvious. And the obvious would be that we are not called in any way to go through our lives with rose-colored glasses. We're not invited to be naively positive or optimistic. We do not turn a blind eye to the world's tragedies and injustices. Quite the contrary. We must be mindful and responsive. People are homeless and people are hungry and people are discarded. And the health and well-being of God's creation is threatened in more ways than we would ever want. We must be awake. But then, but then, let's go back for just a second to the often unexamined perspective that the world is worse than ever. Because at best, this narrative is a half-truth. It may be a narrative that comes naturally to us. I think the human mind prefers to make sense of reality in didactic ways. We're wired that way. Simple conclusions are easier for us. Negative conclusions are easy to come by. The problem is simple. That that bias, it's false. If we were to properly examine the world in which we live, the progress on countless fronts is absolutely extraordinary. Extraordinary. 
by dozens and dozens and dozens of indicators. There are fewer people beneath the poverty line. There are fewer people who are hungry. Fewer people dying of preventable diseases. And so on and so on and so on. Which I hope is a reason for us to be thankful. And I think it was one of the reasons that this morning I was drawn to this psalm, Psalm 33. The the language is really poignant. Sing joyfully to the Lord. Praise the Lord with the harp. Sing to him a new song. He is faithful. God is faithful. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The world, the earth is full of God's unfailing love. Don't forget the starry host. Don't forget the waters, the rivers, the lakes, the seas put into the deep in storehouses. Let all of the people of the world have reverence. Have reverence. Love those words. And are they just lovely words? Do they somehow seem Pollyannish to us? I don't, I don't think so. I think it's more like this. I think these words constitute an invitation. This incredible opportunity that we talk about a lot here that we have a chance to choose the narrative that we live in. And the narrative can never be an either or. I think that's a very important thing for us to know. It's never that the world is terrible or everything is just right. By faith, we're called to have a much more nuanced and sublime perspective. A choice that accounts for hardship and pain and struggle and matches it with awe and reverence. It's the two side by side. A body of water marked by competing currents. When I think about that, that both and, I remember the closing scene in the, in the film Grand Canyon. Anybody remember Grand Canyon? If you don't, I want you to, I want you to see it. It's a, it's a story that is set in Los Angeles. And it's really a story about unlikely relationships. It's a story about how hard relationships are. It's a story about the complexities and the challenges of urban life. It's also a story about what is on the other side of fear, connection, hope, love. And then you have the closing scene. This unlikely group of friends have driven from Los Angeles 
to the rim of the Grand Canyon. And they stand in rapt silence with the deepest, palpable, felt sense of awe. Danny Glover has this little smile on his face. It's amazing. A masterful counterbalance to the mundane challenges and demands of everyday life. So here's what I think. I think God, as much as anything else that God wants, wants each one of us to have more, a greater sense of awe in our lives. Here's what else I think. I'm convinced of it. We have a hunger for it. Awe is about amazement. It's about astonishment. It's about wonderment. And here's the obvious good news. It is always there for the taking. It is always there for the receiving. It's about the eyeglasses that we put on each morning. It's about the choices that we make from one moment to the next moment each and every day. And if God is God, awe is an omnipresent reality. Is it hard to come by? I I, I guess. I guess it's hard to come by. In In a world, you know, we talked about it earlier, that loops in negative news. And in a world where we have this unbelievable sort of collective addiction to screens, all all gets lost, gets overlooked. And so the search for it must be a spiritual practice. The search for it and the finding it must be a commitment that each one of us makes. Recently, I had the chance to listen to Krista Tibbetts. And she did this interview with Dacker Keltner. You guys heard of Dacker? No? You guys are zero today. (laughs) No Grand Canyon. No Dacker. So Dacker is on the faculty at UC Berkeley, and he's now spent about 20 years studying the science of awe. And over that 20 years or more, he's, he's like looked at the stories of more than 2,500 subjects. And this is what he says. He says, after studying more than 2,500 subjects, I have discovered that the primary experience of awe in human life, those moments when we have wonder, we encounter mystery, 
Those are remarkably commonplace. As it turns out, he says, these experiences are measurably health-giving and immunity-boosting. They bring us together with others again and again. They bring our nervous system, our heartbeat, and our breath into sync. This science, he says, is wildly accessible. It is a minute-to-minute invitation to practice a common human experience that is literally life-giving and nourishing and actively good for you and the planet. And then he concludes by saying, if you want to live a good life, I think he means a more spiritually nourishing, nourishing life. Find awe. It's everywhere. Flowers blooming, the moral beauty of people, a pattern of light on the sidewalk. You need not look far to witness the kindness, the courage, and the resilience of ordinary people. And this is his closing line that I love. So please allow goodness to have its own speech. Isn't that cool? Allow goodness to have its own speech. So I was thinking about moral beauty. I recalled an episode from The Crown. Now, I know we're going to go at least one for three. (laughs) Most of you got The Crown, right? I'm thinking about the episode when the crown is trying to figure out how to respond to the horrible tragedy in Wales. The collapse of a mind and the landslide that buries a school and the same landslide that historically took the lives of 116 children and there's a, there's a delay in the crown's response, but, but Philip finally decides he's going to go for the funeral mass. And so he stands with the community along this endless line of children's caskets. And it's heart-wrenching. Really, really Heart-wrenching. And when he gets back to London, the queen asks him about the experience. And he says it was extraordinary. It was astonishing. In the face of the most horrific tragedy, they sang. They sang, loving shepherd of thy sheep. And that particular episode, if you remember, 
has the queen alone in her chambers listening to that hymn with tears running down her face. All has so many faces. This morning it had Jacqueline's face. Kathleen, Jeanette's faces. Moral beauty has so many faces. Always standing up alongside of tragedy and heartache. It's faith's counterpoint to cynicism and negativity. So I say, let's allow goodness to have its own speech. Because always, the earth is full of God's unfailing love. Thanks be to God. Amen.
you for the sunshine.